This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and back with me today on the show is my longtime co-host, Curtis. And today on the podcast, with the end of July now staring us directly in the face, it is time to once again open up the listener mailbag. You guys always bring it for these shows, and today is no different, as we have a ton of great questions and really... A good variety of questions as well this time around. It's it's actually 5.48 p.m. on Thursday, which means that the SEC's decision on the 2020 football scheduling format has just been released within the past hour or so. We were anticipating that because we knew that the SEC university presidents who, let's be frank here, they're the real decision makers when it comes to the future of the 2020 season The ADs, the conference office, the commissioner, they can all hammer out plans and contingencies, but when it comes down to actually making decisions, it's the presidents who have the real power to do that. And we knew they were meeting today, and they were likely to make a decision, obviously in the wake of the ACC making their scheduling decision yesterday. So we tried to wait as long as we could before recording this show today to let all you listeners send in any questions that you might have about the schedule. And we got two of them in before we had to start recording because we had a, a specific window of time to get this show in today. And we pushed that window back as far as we possibly could. We got two questions in before we had to get things going today. So if you have any other questions regarding the schedule or anything else, it's not too late. You can definitely still send all those questions to us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can tweet us, you can DM us, whatever works for you. Or if email is easier for you, if social media is not in your bag of tricks, you can just email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. Because as has been the case the past couple of months, I think it's almost every month this year, it seems like. We've got a ton of questions sent in this month, and honestly, there's just no way that we're going to do all of those questions justice in the recording window that we have time for today. So again, we are going to break up the July mailbag into two parts to make sure that we get to all the questions and make sure that we do all those questions justice. Real quickly, though, before we dig into the first set of July mailbag questions, I have to give some shout-outs to Ben Abbey and Emo Davis for being the latest listeners to write us a couple of very nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. You guys are awesome. We really, really do appreciate the support. I know I always tell you guys on on these episodes that those Apple Podcast ratings and reviews help our show, and and this month is proving why. We set a goal early in the summer. You guys have been listening. You know we set a goal of 200 Apple podcast ratings early on this summer, and you guys have really responded in a big way. Ratings and reviews have been flying in, and we're already up to 210. We've blown past our original goal, and that's awesome, guys. I really appreciate that, and I know that's a modest number. It really is in the grand scheme of the world of, of podcasting, 
But for a show like ours, we have some self-awareness. For a show like ours, it's humbling to have you guys respond in the way you have. And we're very grateful. And as those ratings and re- reviews have poured in over the course of summer, this is what I'm talking about. Our impressions have increased every month to the point that July has already, we have, a, a, I guess, a day and a half left, but it's already been our best month of the entire year, which is not usually the case. We've been doing this sh- this podcast for about six or so years at this point, and July is never really a prime month. It's usually better than like May, but it's not usually better than January, February, and March when you have like the aftermath of the season, signing day, and spring practice to talk about. So it's kind of blown us away that we've had as many listens as we've had this month. So a big thank you to each and every one of you who have taken the time to support us with an Apple podcast rating and review it really has. As the numbers this month show, it's truly, truly helped the show out a lot. But all right, Kurt, we've got a ton of questions to get to today, some questions that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get rolling. And we're going to start with some questions that were sent in seriously like five minutes ago. We pushed things back as far as we could. And bear with us today, please, as we try to answer these questions because Trust me, these are instant reactions. We have not had a ton of time to digest the schedule news. I'm sure we're going to miss something, but we also felt it was really important to get on here and talk about what we could as quickly as possible because I know that you guys have this on your mind. And the first question, we have got two questions on the new scheduling information that came out with the SEC's announcement today. And the first one is from Jason, so we really appreciate the question, Jason. And Jason asks, what do you make of the SEC's new 10-game-only conference schedule? What is the purpose of pushing the season back so far? Do you think this is the right move? So, Kurt, I'm just going to open it up for you, man. What is your reaction to this announcement from the SEC on the new 2020 scheduling format? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Is it a good idea, bad idea? What's your take? I'm pretty disappointed, to be honest, because they set it up to where we could play Tech, and a lot of these SEC teams could still play their rivals. And so that's what I'm, I think I'm most disappointed about, is the ACC made it open to where we could do that, and yet we still went against it. And I, I think that from what I'm reading is it looks like the other teams that don't have the rivals like we do um, were the ones that outvoted us. Yeah, and actually that was question number two, so we'll, we'll kind of put these together. Alex asked in question number two, along the same topic here, why did the SEC decide to go conference only when the ACC made room for keeping traditional rivalries alive? I think you're exactly right in your assertion that we were outvoted, right? Because there's only four SEC programs that have traditional non-conference in-state rivals. It's Georgia, Kentucky, South Carolina, and Florida. And so when there's when there's 14 teams in your conference and there's only four of you that have those rivalry games, those non-con rivalry games, you're going to get outvoted in that situation. So I think that's certainly a part of it. But another part that I, I don't hear people talk much about, and this is something that was kind of in my mind, and Kurt, you're in law school, so you would have, like, work with me here. You'll have more knowledge on this than I would. But there's got to be, I, th- I think, some financial implications associated with having to pay the buyout games or the, the pay games, right? Like those pay games against like East Tennessee state. Well, we normally play the pay those teams like a million plus to come here and get their heads beat in. Right. Yeah. And so I, I, obviously we didn't want to have to pay those buyouts, 
And if you, but here's the thing, like typically there's a provision in those contracts for a, a change in, in the conference and scheduling format. Like, and typically that's, that's in there because like, what if the SEC goes to a nine game conference schedule and you have to cut out, cut out some of your non-con games? That's usually why that's in there. It's not in there for a pandemic because no one's planning for that. But here's the thing. If, if you keep Georgia Tech on the schedule, that one non-conference game, wouldn't that be tough to make the argument that you are playing some some non-con games, but not the others. Like it could be, it, it would be really tough to say, "Hey, East Tennessee State, we don't want to pay you a million dollars and cancel this game." They say, "Well, you, we have this contract right here, and you're playing this other non-conference game, so why can't you play us?" It might just be tough in court and in a legal setting to make the distinction between one non-conference game and another non-conference game, even though one might be Power Five, one might be Group of Five, one might be FCS or whatever. Legally speaking, again, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know, but I can see it might be an issue there when you're trying to cancel these games and avoid having to pay the buyout if you're also still playing other non-conference teams that you just don't happen to owe money to. So to avoid any issues there, maybe you just cancel all non-conference games because you don't want to pay any of those buyouts, especially given the financial straits that athletic departments and universities are facing during this pandemic. Does that make sense, Kurt? I mean, you could say that, but it looks like a lot of those teams aren't even going to have seasons. So I think that's the biggest true. argument against that. Yeah, there, there's some. Yeah, that as remains. That's as, I think true. as long as you kept them as Power Five opponents, I think that I think it should have been okay. I mean, I mean, and that's the thing that blows my mind is yeah, it affects us. You know, the four that play the teams from the ACC, but you had teams like Alabama who was trying to play BYU and other things that get some out of conference games. So it's not like we were the only ones that were wanting to still play someone. That's true. I, it, but I think a part of that might have been like a team like Alabama just because there was no decision that was made. So they were trying to plan for every contingency and have, them, have themselves covered in every possibility out there uh, before an actual decision was reached by the, by the presidents who ultimately hold the decision-making power in this situation. But like when you go back, one thing I'm curious about, Kurt, is how do you feel about moving the schedule back all the way to almost October, the last weekend of September? I think it's really just to cover CYA. I think it's all about data. It, it really is. Because, I mean, look, we know the Southeast right now, some of the states around here in Georgia, South, South Carolina, Florida, obviously, Texas. That has kind of been the hot spot the past month, month and a half, right? So, and you're starting to see some of those numbers decline. You're starting to see cases go down a little bit, hospitalizations, deaths. You're starting to see those go down in these hot spot states. But I think it makes sense to want to give yourself as much time as possible to have those numbers go down, right? And I think you also want to – I think they're looking at how other conferences are are going to get this season started. Like what is it like for them? Do they have any hiccups like Major League Baseball had? What do they do uh, when, when when there are some cases that pop up? What can, what can we learn from, from them trying to start their season earlier than us? Because like right now, the Big 12, as of now, until we hear something different – they still have some teams that moved actually moved their schedule up to the last weekend of August. I think August 29th or so. Almost. Yeah, I'm not sure how up. that's going to work because if there's still a playoffs and things like that, then are some of these teams going to be off for like a month? Well, what you're going to have it well, that brings up another issue. So the SEC title game is right now scheduled for October, or for December 19th, as opposed to December 5th when it was originally scheduled. Well, if there is a college football playoff, that gives the SEC champion if they're in the playoff like only two weeks to prepare for the semifinal game, whereas Maybe a Big 12 team, Oklahoma, might have five, four or five weeks, and that puts you at a competitive disadvantage. So that's an issue right there. But I guess that's just one of those issues you're going to have to deal with in order to try to get the season in. 
Uh, and I also think they're looking at the NFL because this what, what this does pushing it because Greg Sankey. I, I heard him say this on a on an interview somewhere. I can't remember where I listened to it, but I I heard him on an interview. And he was talking about all right, and this was I think shortly after the or either right before or shortly after the Big Ten made their announcement a, a couple weeks back. And he was talking about they really want to see. They were anxious to watch what the NFL was doing, and it makes sense because. What college football is trying to do is most like the NFL is most analogous to what college football is trying to do in terms of the travel, having the contact, the uh, and really just being in a close, closed environment with your teammates and, and the size of the teams. The NFL is the closest in terms of what college football is going to try to do. So I think it, it was important for them to try to watch what the NFL is doing from a training camp perspective, and then obviously for a couple of weeks. I think the NFL again starts two weeks before. The SEC now is scheduled to start, so I think they want to get those data points. So that's what I think about. It's, it's just it was all about the data, whether it's the metrics we've all been looking at for months and months now—cases, deaths, hospitalizations, all that—but also what are other conferences doing? What is what is the NFL doing? How how is it going for them? What can we learn from them? So I think that makes sense to a degree. I also think it's an it's an acknowledgement on some part by the by the college presidents in the SEC that they're. Could be and almost like it's probably going to happen. It's it's almost inevitable. There's going to be some surge in cases as students return to campus. We've seen that everywhere. Basically, whenever places relax their restrictions, there's a there's an influx of new cases because people are out and about and they're getting around each other. That's going to happen. It doesn't mean people are dying. It doesn't mean people are going to the hospital. But there's going to be more spread. So I, I think they realize that. And it and by pushing the season back to the end of September that gives that situation a little bit of time to improve. You get you, you get this, the kids on campus maybe mid to late August, and then you have a month, a month and a half, if there is an outbreak of some sort, to kind of get that under control and then doesn't maybe impact the, the football season as much as it other, otherwise would. So, I mean, that's another thing you got to think about here. Maybe treatments too. Like we're, I, Kurt, I know you were busy today. We're writing a brief, right, something like that. Um, but did you see this news? I, I read a story on the AP wire about the FDA potentially trying, like they're in the process of maybe approving some version of like an at home COVID test. So like, bef- like it, you get it results almost immediately and you would be able like, before you go out to an event, before you go play a game, you can test yourself and see if you have COVID. So, I, I mean, I don't know what if that's going to happen or what exactly that would be like, but there's, there's treatments that they are trying to push out there. So I think that gives you more time there just kind of mitigate the situation in general. But um, I don't know, man, it's, it's really, really weird. How do you, like, you mentioned that you were frustrated with the fact that we're not going to be playing Georgia Tech because this is the first time since, well, I think 1925, I want to say. Why is that a big deal for you? Just because I like bullying them realistically and rubbing yeah. it in their face. I, I, I got to admit, I, I do always love that, man. You know you know how much I hate Georgia Tech, and I love, I love with a passion, I love beating them. But that game, I mean, honestly, if we get – But see, I was a big fan of us potentially moving it to the beginning of the year and with the hope of playing them before we went to Bama and that way we had a game. I was looking at it honestly more of a scheduling matter. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with this. Yes, because there was some talk. And, again, there's just rumors. No one really knew. All right, so the Virginia game is canceled. We still have a possibility to play Tech. And can we move that to the beginning of the season so we have a game before Alabama – and that way, we don't just go in there cold and uh, and and get beat there. Whereas playing a game before we play Bama would certainly help work out some of the kinks offensively with a new offensive coordinator, new quarterback, all those things. So I would have loved to have to have that opportunity. But honestly, like, we don't. We still don't know. Are, are we still playing Bama first? They might just completely tear up the schedule and start from scratch. 
that could easily be the case. I'm sure we'll be playing the same teams that were on our schedule, but in terms of like when we play them, who knows? So the ACC, they, they announced who everybody was playing, but they did not announce when those games were being played. Uh, and it looks like, you know, the, look, we don't know, but again, the rumor is, the word is the most likely scenario here is where we are going to play the next two teams that are up on our uh, cross-division rotation, which would be Arkansas and Mississippi State. So it would be Arkansas home at Mississippi State. But yeah, it would have been nice to have Tech early this season. But honestly, like I, I do love being Tech, but it doesn't necessarily break my heart that we're not going to play them when you add in two extra conference games. So I'm I'm not like freaking out about that. I'm okay. I wish we would have had a chance to play a full season, but if this – if this is the best that we can come up with in order to get a season in, I'm kind of okay with it. And one more thing before we move on, Kurt, do you think this has any impact on the chance to maybe have some sort of attendance in Sanford Stadium this season? I think attendance-wise, yes. Pushing it back is trying to hope that things clear uh, clear up some. Yeah, I, I think it does. Like that gives me more hope that we're going to have. And look, it's certainly not going to be a full stadium. I, I feel confident saying that. I know I did say that at one point that, that I felt like things were turning in the right direction about two months ago. But obviously, that has changed over the over the past couple months. But yeah, I think the further you push it back, the more chance you give the data to improve, and the more the data improves, the more likely it is to have some sort of attendance in the stadium. And, and what that looks like, who's going to be allowed in, we still don't know those answers. I, I, there's an McGarity put out a statement and said he appreciates the patience among the, the season ticket holders, but they'll try to get out something as soon as possible. But I don't think he even knows right now. So, But I do think that it gives us a better chance to potentially have more of a crowd in the stands than we would have if we start the season in uh, the first the first weekend of September. So that might be a, a little silver lining here. But I still think there's risk. There's still risk associated with pushing the season back like this because – you're pushing the season back further into the cold and flu season. But I don't know if it's an overwhelming risk because honestly, we're basically pushing the season back two weeks when it's all said and done. Like the SEC championship game was originally scheduled for December 5th. Now it's December 19th. So I don't know if two weeks is going to make all that much of a difference. So honestly, I I'm okay with this. And in fact, I might even like what we're doing. I like that we're playing 10 conference games. I've long been a proponent of playing nine conference games and I, I think it'll be some really quality football. And hopefully this will give us a chance to actually get some fans in the stands, which is really a big part of what makes college football college football. So I don't know. Obviously, there's a lot of news that's going to be coming out in the next couple of days. So we'll continue to cover this again. If we didn't answer a question you have about this scheduling scenario, feel free to send those questions to us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. Or you can email us at gloryujpodcast at gmail.com. And we will get to those in part two of the July mailbag. But all right, Kurt, let's move on here. Enough about this schedule topic. Epic College Football has a question that we have, and in, in fairness here, he when he sent this question in, he he made it clear that he knew, he knows that we've answered this question before, but there has been new information that's come to light, so I don't want you to kill him here, Curtis, because there has been some new information here. And this is a question we always get. We, we talk about this all the time. We get this question every single summer about this time about recruiting. And so Epic Hushaball asked, I'm asking a question you've gotten many times, but it's something that a lot of Georgia fans are probably thinking right now. And I agree with you on that, my friend. He says, it's time to push, is it time to push the panic button when it comes to the 2021 class after losing out on James Williams most recently? So Kurt, like we talked about this uh, maybe two months ago with a question on this, but there have been a number of, of our top prospects that have committed elsewhere in that time frame. 
So are you still saying that there's no reason to be concerned about the 2021 class? I'm not going to because it seems like you're seeing a lot of kids wanting to stay closer to home at the, with this stuff going on. But I think a lot of that's going to change too, especially, I mean, you've got coaching staffs are going to change. I mean, there's always turnover. And I think a lot of these kids are just wanting to try to commit to, you know, oh, hey, get it out of the way. But I think you – I realistically – I mean, yeah, it's hurt, and we've seen some guys go the other way that we definitely don't want to, but I don't think it's all said and done at all. So you're not really worried right now? Is that what you're saying? I mean, of course I'd rather I'd, – I'd, I mean, who wouldn't want to be in a little bit higher position right now? Um, but I just don't think that it's all as doom and gloom as everyone is thinking right now. I mean, of course, we have the fringe lunatic fan base in general that just wants to be uh, – gloom uh, you know gloom about everything yeah. and actually kind of almost cheer when something bad happens to us it's passion man people are passionate about college football <laughs> yeah well okay yeah, would you at least that say is. that you are more concerned this year than you have been this time of year in the past couple of seasons not really because think of all the big time a lot of the big time guys we've gotten in the past we flipped true and i do think that there are going to be a lot more flips. I think there's a, at least there's a strong possibility we'll see a lot more flips down the stretch this cycle, especially if they start to open up campuses for kids to be able to come in and take visits again. So, I, look, I, I will say that I, I think concerns are more valid than at any previous point. Yeah, I mean, there. I think I think it's fair. But the people that are fringe lunatic, you know, losing their mind over it, it's – it's way too early for that. I agree. I, I'm. I'm certainly the not ones that are out. like, has Kirby lost his touch? Oh my god! Stuff? Yeah, like, I, please, yeah. please get out of here with that. That's the type of stuff I don't want to hear. I mean, yeah, you can be worried and stuff like that, but to sit here and say that, just like you see some of these people, we just don't have a good uh, COVID nineteen staff. Like what? Yeah, because like that's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Well, and, and even if we well, don't just think about have... it, we yeah, we lost out on Tony Grimes. We couldn't fit him in because he wanted to enroll early. So please yeah, tell that was, us that what, was a what the coaching staff could have done to change that. Kick someone Tony, out of our roster. Right. And Tony – to me, it's a lot it's, – it's, it, you're right. It's context with a lot of these guys. Tony Grimes, he wanted to come here, but he wanted to reclassify because they weren't going to play high school football in Virginia this year, and we didn't have room for him. That sucks. I would have liked to make room for him. We couldn't make room for him because our class was already full from last year. Tony Ferguson, right, the, the offensive lineman from Peach County – well, we, from my understanding, is we see him as an offensive guard. He wants to play tackle. Alabama, which said still doesn't make sense that Bama's offering him as a guard when you've got the Latham. Well, I mean, I, I, what, I, I don't know what's going on inside inside their meetings and whatnot. But like, I, my understanding is they're at least going to give him a chance. They told him like, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to try you out at tackle and guard, and we'll see what where you work out best." But I, I think we were up front with him and told him, "No, like we we see you as a guard," and you know what. He ends up going to Alabama, and that's okay. And we also signed a killer offensive line class last year, and we still have Amarius Mims out there. I know he just pushed back his his day, but that, I don't necessarily see that as again doom and gloomers. When they see the Amarius Mims pushes his day back, they freak out and say, "Oh my god, we lost Amarius Mims." Yeah, and that that's the part of the fan base. I mean, it happens to every fan base, but I think that attitude is nothing but destructive and toxic. Yeah. Now James Williams, because that's uh, who was specifically mentioned in this question. I, I don't have context for that one. We just missed on James Williams as of yeah, right now. I, I want, and that's another one of these things, like I was talking about, like with all this stuff going on, there's a lot of pressure for these kids to stay close to home right now. 
Yeah, but but that's true. But there are some schools that are are pulling guys out of state. But I, I do think. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, but I think that what's really affecting you see a lot of these schools pulling guys from out of state, and a lot of them were visits right before the right. shutdown right. happened. Also, that that's a huge part of this. How many times were you able to get on campus to whatever out of state school it might be? Before. Like Barry Carter, I think he visited Clemson right before the shutdown yep. happened. Like you had a lot of these kids visit these schools, right? And that, so that's their most recent visit on top of their mind. And then look at James Williams. We have a lot of that in-state pressure. And it's easy for them to communicate with him when he's just down the street. Sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think there's context here. And, like, you're right. The, I, I don't have much patience with the people that are, are throwing stuff out there on social media. Oh, my God, has Kirby Smart lost his touch? Like, even if, even if we finish lower in the recruiting rankings this year than we – have the past four or five years to me that is not some indictment on Kirby Smart and his staff that is just the situation that we are currently that is, that is a function of this coronavirus pandemic time frame and yeah sure you can say other schools have made adjustments and it's worked out really well for them one of the things that I would say to try to explain that is a big part of what we do in recruiting is the recruiting infrastructure infrastructure that Kirby has built right and a lot of those guys aren't allowed to recruit off campus Getting guys on campus, even for like unofficial visits, are huge because that is when this infrastructure that Kirby has built from a recruiting standpoint, that is when all of that shines. That is when you get to show off the city of Bath and you get to show off our new That's facility. Say, let's no, be honest, Athens is undefeated. That's own project. And you can't show the guys Athens is undefeated because when you get a kid to Athens and show them what downtown Athens is like and what the life as a football player is like, it really seals the deal with a lot of these kids, but you can't do that right now. Yeah, you can't do that right now. We can't show off all the shiny toys that we have that we've built over the past couple of years, the indoor practice facility, the West End Zone project. We can't show off all those things. And we built those. I'm telling you, like, look, especially the West End Zone project, that was built for recruiting, first and foremost, with recruiting in mind. That's how you get big guys. And that's one of the reasons our recruiting had dropped before Kirby got here. We always recruited well because, you know, we live in a great town. It's an SEC school. We have a good tradition, but not the level we are now because we didn't have those shiny toys, and we also didn't have Kirby Smart. So it, it, even if we finish fifth, or six this year and not in the top two or top three i in no way in my opinion is that an indictment on kirby smart well, and just wait that. till we can show off the new locker room like oh bama everyone made a big, big deal about their new locker room yeah but they really didn't add that much to their facility we're about to add a whole new weight room about all deeply the size of the weight room yeah and adding a new eating area to have a state-of-the-art nutrition facility all of these things yeah, we can't even get guys on campus to show them the, the the mock-ups of all those things that we're doing. And look, I'm confident at some point before this cycle is over, they're going to the NCAA is going to pull the restrictions. They're going to open up campuses for visits again. And again, Kirby has always been really good at flipping guys. Legs. Well, because I, honestly, I think you have to because you're going to have some kids transferring real quick when they yeah. realize it's not what they thought when they get there. And you're going to have all these kids. I mean, it's just not fair to these kids. I know it's a it's an unprecedented situation, but it's not fair to these kids to make these like truly life-changing, potentially life-changing decisions without being able to get on campus. That's crazy. So once those visits are opened up, hopefully, I really think you're going to see more movement from a flipping perspective than ever before. I think a lot of guys right now are are committing, trying to get their spot in a, in a class and just making what they think is the best decision decision they can make right now for themselves. But that might change. When you get a chance to actually come on campus, so again, when Kirby has to show off the city of Athens, the recruiting infrastructure, all the, the facility toys that we have to show off, I, I think there's a strong chance some of these guys, when it's all said and done, we might flip them back over to the side of the good guys. James Williams is one of them. Like, I know he's staying Especially home. Especially like right when now. we're in the final two. It's not like we're getting blown away in recruiting either. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And there's still a ton of big-time targets out there. Dominic Edwards, the running back for Michigan – 
is one of those guys that's really high on my list. Brock Bowers, Mims, all those guys. Like not all. It's not like all of our big targets have committed elsewhere. Sure, some of them have. You know, Barrett Carter losing him that really sucked, man. But we've had we've long had issues in Gwinnett County, which we've talked about on this show. That's tough. Uh, James Williams, that was the one to me that stung because you know there's not a ton of context around that one. That's just we we missed out on him right now. Hopefully, and you, no one really time. saw it coming. Yeah, there had been a little bit of chatter, but it, it seems like it caught everyone kind of off guard. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah, and Ferguson again. I think there's some context there, and and even if even if there wasn't, let's say Bama just especially they, when they Ferguson were, announced that he was going to make it around the time he knew that Mims was going to go public. So kind of yep, awesome. And you got to look. I and mean, I know Bama is signing a, a hellacious offensive line class this year, but we just signed that level of an offensive line class last year. So there's no class separation for some of those. Honestly, like pulling guys like that, pulling a guy like Mims when you have Roger Jones and Tate Rattledge already on campus. Like to me, that's impressive. Even honestly, being the conversation, they can go when they can go to almost any other school they want to. So I, 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 I think there's some context there. Yes, it, it, it's tough to miss out on some of these guys, but I'm still not freaking out. And it's we still got well, a especially long until way to go. Signing day comes and passes, and then we're sitting, you know, 15 to 20. Then I'll say, e okay, but we're not. Yeah. If we get into like November, December, and things are continue to trend in the wrong direction, well, and if we have a good year, out. like we're hoping and planning. Yeah, that'll help. That'll help. That'll help. So I know we're probably the minority there. And and look, I, I know it's we're all passionate about this. And when things don't go as well as they have been on, on the recruiting trail, I mean, we've been spoiled. We really have. I, I understand the tendency to, to get worried. And I, I'm not going to say I have no concerns. I think the concerns, like I said, are more valid than at any previous point in Kirby's tenure. But it's not because of Kirby and his staff. Those guys didn't forget how to do what they do. It's just – Again, a function of the situation that we are in right now with this pandemic, and I, and I, I think it's temporary, and we'll be we'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. All right, moving on here. We got a question from Eric Taylor. Really appreciate this question, Eric. He asks: Is the D line group of Jordan Davis, Trayvon Walker, Jalen Carter, Malik Herring, and David Marshall? Uh, I guess David Marshall he graduated. He's gone. The most talented group George has had since going to the three four alignment. Kurt is he onto something there? Yeah, I definitely think this is definitely the most talented uh, group we've had, honestly. I mean, when you take into account that you've got Jordan Davis, but you also have a heck of a guy coming off the bench um, and Julian Rochester. I think that's the one guy we're not talking about enough that can give us quality depth at any position across the board. Not even mentioning Devontae Wyatt either, who was a monster for us. Devontae Wyatt, Malik Heron. I mean, all these guys are going to eat up blocks. Jalen Carter, I think, is going to come in there and be a beast. You got Logue, Norton, all these guys who we're not talking about either. And one thing I love about them is they they all have diff- certain skill sets. They have roles they can play. Like Trayvon Walker, is he a is he a three down tackle right now? Last year he wasn't ready for that, but we'll see how how much he's bulked up, how much he's grown this season. Jalen Carter, I am so excited about Jalen Carter. I think he's a guy that can come in. I think he's going to be one of those rare dudes, kind of like a Tyler Davis from Clemson last year, that can come in and make an immediate impact on the defensive line. Malik Herring is a stud. He's like, he does not get near as much love as I think that guy deserves. Jordan Davis is a monster at the nose guard position. Devonte White is a, is a great pass rusher from the interior spot there. He was, a, he was one of the fixtures on our third down package. He was like the, that one defensive lineman, that true defensive lineman that we still had in the game most of the time when we, when we got to third and long situations. So he just had great pass rushing skills. So I really, really like this group. And honestly, from like a, just a pure talent perspective, I'm not sure you can even argue that this is that, that there was a more talented group than this. Can you, Kurt? Like, I, I can't. I don't. I don't think there's a legitimate argument to, to be made that there was another group that we've had in the past decade or so 
Yeah, I agree. I find it hard to that argument. Like, we've had good players. Like, we've had good individual players. But as a group, I mean, Jalen Carter, Trayvon Walker, that's two five-star dudes right there. Jordan Davis is only a three-star, but he was vastly undervalued. Malik Carey, kind of the same. You know, he was a four-star. But, I mean, Malik's playing at, at a five-star level as, as a five-tech defensive end, doing what he's asked to do there. And Julian's, you know, got that veteran presence there. I love this group. I, and, and even if you look at last year, the group we had last year was the second highest graded front seven. I know that includes inside linebackers and outside linebackers, but as from a front seven, it was the second highest graded front seven according to Pro Football Focus in the league last year. Missouri was just a hair above us at, with a 90.7 grade, and our front seven was 90.4 right there. And now you're going to throw Trayvon Walker in as a, as a, as a sophomore now. you got Jalen Carter coming in, Julian Rochester back in the mold or in, in, the, uh, in the fold here. I absolutely think that you are you're exactly right here, Eric, that this is gonna be the most talented demons of line group that we have had since we moved to that three-four alignment. Totally agree. All right, next one up. This is a fun question. This is an interesting question, Kurt. This is from Ashton. We really appreciate the question, Ashton. He asked us, who are your top five non-star players that you've watched at Georgia? So, Kurt, I'm not gonna ask you to give me five, but just throw me a couple guys here who maybe and like I don't a non-star player like that, that's certainly kind of subjective there, but who are some of the guys that maybe weren't those like household names that if you said their name, every college football fan in the country knows who they are that you really enjoyed watching at Georgia. Uh, is it for this year? No, I, I, well, I'm interpreting the question as just that you've watched since you've really been watching Georgia football. Um, I always think of Craig Lumpkin. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Tavares King. Yeah, Tavares King is and, – and, and I know and TK was really good for us. He's on my list too. He was really good for us. I know some people would, would argue – he was a star player. But, dude, no, he was on the AJ Green teams, all right? He was an AJ shadow. So TK was awesome, but he – I don't I wouldn't class him as a star player. I'm with you on that one. Probably Rennie. But see, I think when he was here, Rennie was a pretty well, big I mean, name. Rennie was good, but he was not like a highly recruited guy. He wasn't as high – yeah, he wasn't a five-star dude. But I, it, I, I considered it Rennie. I just didn't think he was like. And again, that's just where maybe the Mikey Henderson. Who? Mikey Henderson before yeah, he had his not, Mikey uh, before trouble. Mikey got in trouble with. Yeah, had some legal issues that I don't want to go into. But yeah, watching him play like that that touchdown catch in overtime against Alabama that was awesome. Uh, he was a good one. I'll throw a couple guys at you. Sean Williams, safety dude. One uh, seriously, probably my top five favorite players of the past like. 20 years. Love Sean Williams. Just love the way he played his attitude. I thought he was completely undervalued. Made a really nice career for himself in the NFL. Uh, Amarlo Herrera. He started a multi-year starter for us. Really good player. I wouldn't classify him as a star. Uh, ben Jones. Obviously just love the nasty offensive line attitude that guy brought to the table. I'll never forget the image of him with the tech turf in his mouth. Just a crazy dude. And Another guy's made a long career for himself in the NFL, but I don't really think was a, a, a national star in uh, when he was in college. Daniel Inman is another lineman you want to throw in there, just kind of like Ben Jones, just a nasty offensive lineman would like, like choke people out on the field, uh, but wasn't a national star. I'll go back to my time in college. Trey Battle, remember him, Kurt? Was that before yeah, he your was time? Big. Yeah, he was a big guy. Yeah, little little dude, but played played big, right? Uh, there was yeah, a game in Auburn. Was it two thousand or was it two thousand six? Maybe I want to say. Against or maybe 2005, I don't know. 2000, yeah, I think it was 2006 against Auburn. Had a pick. I think it was a pick six in that game. That we were uh, we were an underdog in that game, and and uh, we were able to win that when he played big in that one. So Trey Battle was a guy that I just loved watching. He had, I mean, he got it was a guy that was 
just an afterthought in recruiting and just worked his way into being a, a really good player for us. Uh, Aaron Davis is another one more recently who was certainly an afterthought in recruiting, but became a multi-year starter, very versatile player for us. Never, never a superstar, but a guy that I just had a lot of respect for on and off the field. Um, I know I've probably thrown out more than five here. Christian Payne, I love a good throwback fullback because you don't see those guys anymore. But uh, I really loved watching Christian Payne when he was here. So there's a couple of names for you, Ashton. Thanks for the question, man. All right, next up, we got a question from our man Cliff. Always appreciate it, Cliff. And Cliff says, the media has acted like the Georgia offensive line is taking a big step back in 2020. Having Jamie Newman offsets that, I believe, with his obvious physical tools. Personally, I don't see the offensive line being a liability. Plus, a scheme change should also help them as a unit. What are your thoughts? Kurt, do you agree with Cliff here? Do you think the offensive line um, I'm okay with the media being against it because the last time they thought our offensive line would be terrible, we were really good that first year, uh, the second year with Sam Pittman. Um, for where we went to the national championship, that was one of our strengths was the offensive line. And then the last couple of years, all they do have done is hyped up the offensive line, and I thought it's never truly lived up to its expectations. Um, so I want to start with that. And the second off, I think that I'm okay with the new philosophy. I think it's better fit for the talent we have. I think that especially how predictable we were becoming in all, our play calling made our offensive line play that much more weak. Do you think that the questions the media has about our offensive line, because I've seen them say the offensive line is not like, I've seen some people say that we're like, you know, we have the fourth or fifth best offensive line in, in the SEC, come, in, in just the league coming into this season. Do you think the questions are fair right now? Um, I mean, maybe they're fair, but a lot of these are clickbaits. I mean, this is the same media making these questions that say Kyle Trask is the best quarterback in the SEC. Very true. And I have... Tried my best to, to debunk the Kyle. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's my thing. I mean, I, I, of course, there's question marks. We have a lot of unproven talent, but I'm definitely not going to give any credence to a lot of these so called sure. media people that have some yeah. uh, very questionable things. And look, do do we lack experience at certain spots on the line? Absolutely. I can argue. Yeah, but see, I'm not, not arguing against that. I mean, we don't know who we left tackle. I think Sire can really step in, just as you saw Isaiah Wynn do a couple of years ago. Um, but the thing is, they act like we haven't been recruiting four and five stars. That's the thing. You can't on at, one hand at, at will. Yeah, you can't on one hand laud Georgia for recruiting all these crazy, impressive offensive linemen, and then on the other hand, say, "Oh yeah, Georgia offensive line is going to suck this year." Huh? How can you possibly say that? How can you say, "Yeah, they've recruited so well in the offensive line, but oh man, they're not going to be good this year"? What are you talking about? It makes no sense whatsoever, but that's just that's the college football mainstream media for you. But like, look, there is an experience. So I, I understand the, the questions to a degree because there is an experience. We're gonna, and you're replacing two first-round picks at, the, at each tackle position, another draft pick at left guard. I get that. I, I understand the question. You lose, Kate, you lose Cade Mays. I get all that. I understand the questions to, to some degree. But even though there's going to be some inexperience, I've always been, and I've said this over and over again on this show, I am a talent guy first. Yes, you experience helps. Obviously, it helps. Coaching helps. Sure, that helps. But you got to have the dudes. It's about having the dudes. And right now, I am very confident that we have the dudes on the offensive line. They just got to get some, they, they got to get some experience in gel. It might not, it might not be exactly what we want to be right away, but I think as the season wears on, this this unit is going to be very, very good. And I do agree, Cliff, that having a, a mobile quarterback is going to help matters, certainly. 
And uh, I, I think that I really believe that with Todd Munkin, he's going to do some things offensively from a schematic standpoint. If there are any issues on the offensive line, which I really think is, is being overplayed, but if there happens to be, I think he's going to do some things schematically to kind of compensate for that. But I, I'm with you, Clifford. I, I, I do think it's, I will say, I think it's fair. There's, there are some questions, but I do not in any way believe that we're going to take a massive step back. I don't believe it at all. Uh, all right. Next up here, we got a couple more minutes before we got to get out of here. I've got a question from Noah, Curtis. It's probably a quick one. If you could pick only one player on Georgia's roster as this year's X Factor, who would it be and why? Kurt, who are you looking at? Ooh. X Factor. Well, I thought about going with the tight end position in general between Trey McKitty and Darnell Washington, whoever steps up, because I think that's going to be a huge X Factor, what they can bring to the passing game. Yeah, and to me, it's about the pass. And I'm not going to argue with you there because that's the reason I had D-Rob in here because we need someone to take pressure off of, off of George Pickens. If, if it's the tight end position, position, fantastic. But I think D-Rob is the guy that I would look at that's most likely to be that guy. We need him to be that guy. It is truly now or never for Demetrius Robertson. And I know we have a, a lot of really talented youngsters coming at the wide receiver position. Kirby has aggressively attacked the issues we had last year in recruiting. And those guys could come in and make an immediate impact. They certainly could. I'm not writing any of them off. But D-Rob, I'm still giving him the edge right now because he's been here now. This is, what, his third season here in Athens? And this is this is the money year for D-Rob. And I think he has the skill set. I'm really excited to see with his speed what we can do offensively with Todd Munkin and his inclination to want to push the ball vertically down the field. I think that fits D-Rob's skill set. And I am, I'm excited to see what D-Rob can do. And, we're, and the reason I say he's an X-factor, again, is we, we know what we have in George Pickens. But so does every defensive coordinator on our schedule. We need somebody to be able to take that pressure off him. And I think D-Rob is the one that's most likely to be that guy. So if, if he can do that, if he can be that guy, I think that changes the equation for our offense this season. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So I've got a couple more minutes. Got a few more questions that we can throw in here. Let's go down to this one. I like this question. This is from Caleb. Caleb says, it's been a long while, guys. But who are your hidden gems on this Georgia team that you expect to exceed expectations this season? So hidden gems, Kurt, who would you point out as a hidden gem? A guy who maybe hasn't made much of an impact yet, but could break onto the scene this year. Jermaine Johnson. Okay, Jermaine Johnson. Why, why is he the guy that comes to mind for you? I think this guy just oozes athletic ability, um, just pure natural athletic ability that most people on this team don't truly have. I think he's more athletic strength and speed wise than what you have in Aziz Ojolari, but I think he had been lacking the good coaching. Yeah, I agree. I, I've heard he's put on about 15 good pounds. Have you heard that too? Which is crazy to think because he's already a big guy, but if he, I think he could become a real force and potentially even push as good as Ojolari's push him for PT because he can, he's, I think he's just more athletic than Aziz. I think there's a strong argument that you could make that's the case. Uh, and you and I were both really high on Jermaine Johnson coming into last year. You could before. just see how raw he was. Cause yeah, he, he was. Just, you could see the game looked a little fast for him at times where they only trusted him to do certain things. But I think that you're going to see him have more job, uh, you know, more, more responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. And you, you're right. You saw the potential. You saw the athleticism. You saw that. He just was – you're right. He was raw. He, he needed some polish. And I, and I think last year – was was a really important year to allow him to to gain that to learn to improve and I think this year he he's a guy God think about our outside linebackers man Jesus we've got Aziz Nolan who's a former number one overall 
a player in the 247 composite. Jermaine Johnson, Adam Anderson still on the roster. I mean, he might be the best actual pass rusher of the entire group. MJ Sherman, who I've actually heard some really good things about since he's gotten on campus and they've been working out. Like, we are loaded at that position. I mean, it is just unfair right now. But Jermaine Johnson, that's a, that's a really good name to throw out there. I'm going to go offensive here, and I'm going to go with Tommy Bush. He's another guy that I've heard some good things about around town since they've got back on campus. And, like, nobody's really seeing what's happening. So it's like third and fourth hand. No one really knows exactly what's happening. But I've heard some good things about him, and I'm still high on him. I know he hasn't made much of an impact yet. He was a four-star recruit a couple years back out of the state of Texas. But he was dealing with sports hernia. I mean, we could have used him last year, but he was dealing with sports hernia most of the year. By the time he got cleared, it was late in the season, and you were, you know, just he didn't factor into the plans. But I think this year, I know we got again, we got a bunch of young guys. I'm excited to see what D Rob can do. But I think Tommy Bush at 6'5, about 200 pounds, can be what I was hoping Matt Landers could be last year. That Matt Landers just never ever came close to it. And I look, I knew Landers had issues, but with I was just seduced by his size and his ability to just to go up and get the football. But he just, man, he just I don't want to say head case, but man, it just did not click for him last year. But I think Tommy Bush can be that guy. I really think he can be that guy. And uh, so he's a name that I I know we have a bunch of guys that that we're going to be looking at this year at the wide receiver position as guys who potentially come in and break out, whether they're true freshmen coming in like Jermaine Burton, Marcus Rosamy, all those guys. But I think Tommy Bush is a name to certainly watch for at that position with a new coordinator in the fold here. I think he might fit into the system really well. Uh, all right, let's stick with wide receivers for a second here, Kurt. Darren has a question about the wide receivers. This will be the last question we have time to get to today. How does the wide receiver rotation look game one versus game six or seven? That's an interesting question, Kurt. What do you think? Um, I'm going to think you're going to see some of these young guys getting more reps, especially as the time comes. Um, you know, Burton and Rosemary definitely jump, jump off at you. And you may even, like you mentioned, see Tommy Bush, you know, as a, upper, you know, as a guy who's been around, start to establish himself more over other guys on the roster. I think that you may see someone like him, um, D-Rob and Bush, be your starting group as the season goes on. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was the case. I, I would think to open the season – the most likely snare would be obviously Pickens, D-Rob on the outside, and then some combination of Don Blaylock and Kiaris Jackson in the slot. Would probably be the guys I would say be the safest bet to start the season because of their experience, they've been here, all that. But as the season goes on, I'm with you. I think Pickens is obviously going to be a fixture, but I would not be shocked. I hope D-Rob takes that step this year, but it would not be out of the question for a guy like Jermaine Burton, Marcus Rosemey, any of those freshmen coming in to come in and, and really push to be a starter at that outside spot if D-Rob is not ready to take that next step, which I hope he is. But if they're not ready, those guys are going to be nipping at his heels. And I, it's tough to say with, with Don Blaylock because he's coming off the ACL injury. I, From what I understand, he should be ready to go once spring drills actually or uh, fall camp actually starts. But I don't know. If, if he's back to what he was last year, I think Blaylock's probably going to end up staying that guy in the slot. I and mean, we have a lot of guys that can play the slot, so there'll be some rotation in certainly. I think if he's healthy, he'll be a fixture in the lineup as well. But Burton, Rosemey, those are the two that I would really watch for. And Arian Smith, if he can get back fully healthy, which I think he will be by that time. He's in the guy with incredible speed that I, I think Todd Munkin can really make some use for. So should be a lot of fun to watch how that plays out this season. But all right, guys, that does it for us here today on the Glory UGA podcast. We really appreciate you guys listening in and supporting us here on the podcast. And we will be back next week with part two 
of the July listener mailbag. So if we did not get to your questions, I promise we are not ignoring anybody. We will get to all the remaining questions next week. And of course, if you still have some questions that you have not had a chance to send in yet, you can still continue to do so. You can send those to us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA, or you can email them if that's easier to glory UGA podcast at gmail.com. So it's Great to finally have some sort of clarity on what the 2020 season will look like, how it will be structured, but there are still a lot of questions to be answered. Who are we going to play? Is it just going to be as simple as saying we're going to play Arkansas and Mississippi State because those are the two next teams up in our cross-divisional rotation? What order are the games going to be played in? Are they just going to stay in the same order as they were previously scheduled and you just throw in the two new games at the end of the schedule? When exactly are we playing these games? Still a lot of questions to be answered. So as those answers do come up, we will certainly have you guys covered here on the podcast. So look forward to that as well. But thanks for listening. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.